Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast. In each episode, I talk about an individual bird species telling you all you need to know about it with my shitty jokes included. Today's episode is on the brown pelican, and I'm recording from a very awesome place right now. If you haven't figured it out yet from listening to the sounds of the crashing waves, I am recording right by the ocean. I'm in Nags Head in the Outer Banks. This is a perfect spot to be talking about these birds because they have been flying overhead in their V formation. There's some gulls flying around. I saw some cormorants on the beach. There's the little sandpipers and plovers that you always see. So it's a very fitting setting to talk about this pelagic bird species. I first decided to do this episode after Kevin uh, suggested it to me, and he sent me this great voice memo. Hey, John, it's Kevin. I'm here um, at Langley Air Force Base. I'm looking out across the back river, and there's some osprey nests, and they're active. Some Canadian geese. And I earlier, when I got here, there was at least one pelican, not certain what kind. But I, went, I recently went down to Mississippi Gulf Coast to visit my brother. And uh, I was on a bike ride along the seawall down there. There's still a lot of remnants of Katrina and the latest hurricane that scars the coast. You know, things like broken piers, pilings jutting out of the calm water. It was a Sunday morning. It was really calm. It was about 8 a.m. And I noticed on one of these uh, pilings, there were 30 brown pelicans. They were kind of manning the post. So I stopped on my bike and and uh, decided to watch them a little bit and see what kind of behavior I would I would notice. And it, it was amazing because they became pretty active. Um, there appeared to be a leader. One got up and you know he started flying off and the 29 followed. And wherever he flew, the 29 followed. And I was watching them, and they were kind of gliding low over the water, uh, searching for something. And then lead, just like a bomber mission, the lead, he sees something, and he tells the rest of them, I'm going in. And he crashes. He doesn't dive into the water. He crashes. It was not graceful. He slowly, and you know, he slowly uh, recovered in the water, his bill sticking up, his head's held high. And the others are all kind of doing the same thing, you know, just the same awkward dive and just kind of floating there, recovering. Uh, 
then they get up and they do it again. I'll tell you what, pelicans are not going to win any bird Olympics for diving, that's for sure. But there must have been a school of fish popping on the water or something. They did the same routine for maybe like the next 10 minutes. And then back to the same pilings to dry out. So I'm thinking they probably got breakfast at that time in the morning. But it was a beautiful sight. I uh, wish I had taken more pictures. It would have been pretty distant with my, my phone, but I think you get the gist. So I got a couple of questions based on that. Uh, first of all, uh, do, do pelicans eat uh, anything other than fish? Kind of curious about that. Um, and what do pelicans do when their significant environmental impact like uh, hurricanes you know where do they go do they try to they try to weather the storm does it take a toll on their population and then the third part that i notice is that that i brought up is 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 there a pecking order <laughs> you know like is there an, an alpha pelican um because definitely could see where this one not particularly larger but was wherever he went the others seemed to kind of follow not in a a duck v uh chevron but just kind of like uh, a flock of them just kind of followed him around wherever he went so hey thanks the the podcast is great uh really loving it really love it on trips so um take care and good luck Thanks for the voice memo, Kevin. You did a great job narrating the roosting and feeding behavior of the brown pelican. Um, I'll be explaining their behavior and answering almost all of your questions during the show. Uh, But before I get started, a quick shout out to Mark who sent me an awesome email. He is a first year bio major at a small liberal arts school in New York. Um, He's been using Dirty Bird Podcast to get a sense of community as he goes bird watching um, and starts to learn more about birds and getting into birding in general. Uh, I think it's so incredible that my dumb little podcast has made that positive impact on you, Mark. Welcome to the Dirty Bird family. I'm always happy to keep you company while you learn about a new bird. Check out Dirty Bird Podcast social media. Uh, to see some pictures of invasive monk parakeets that Mark took in NYC while he was doing a little project studying their nesting. Also, stay tuned at the end of the episode where I'll read Dirty Bird Podcast's most recent review on Apple Podcasts. I've had some new reviews rolling in recently. That's so awesome. It makes me so happy when I see those. It also helps people find the show, too. So remember, if you write a review, be sure to send me an email or uh, DM me on Instagram, and I'll send you some free stickers. All right, so on with the show. So today we're talking about the brown pelican. Um, As I said earlier, this is a bird of the coast. Um, I'm hoping I'll see some while I'm recording here, and I'll kind of call them out. I definitely saw some earlier flying around, uh, just in groups of like five or six, flying in that classic V formation. So hopefully some more will come by. Right now it's just some gulls kind of diving in the water, eating some food. The ocean is furious today. There was a hell of a wind last night. Um, really was kind of shaking the, the little sea cottage. So uh, um, the it looks like a washing machine out there right now. I would, I would not want to be swimming in that. So I don't know, maybe the pelicans don't want to really be hanging out in it either. 
But a few facts about the brown pelican. It is actually the smallest pelican species, um, but still a pretty big bird. It measures anywhere from three to five feet long and has a wingspan of six to 7.5 feet. And just the bill itself is a pretty amazing feature of this bird. It's over a foot long. As the name implies, brown pelicans have a brown or a gray coloration to their body feathers. This contrasts with the white pelican um, of North America, which, as its name implies, has pretty much an all-white body. Another way you can tell apart the brown pelicans from the uh, white pelicans is the brown pelican is a bird of the ocean coastline and saltwater, whereas the white pelican is most often found in freshwater. Brown pelicans do have white neck and uh, head um, with a yellowish wash covering the feathers around their eyes and their bill. The bill is definitely the most striking feature of this bird. You know, they have that classic long pelican beak with a hooked point at the upper mandible of the bill tip. And of course, the bottom mandible is complemented by that fleshy sack called a gullar pouch that pelicans use to scoop up fish. There are some differences in the different subspecies of brown pelicans. Uh, the California populations, for example, have red coloration to this throat pouch. As far as the range of these birds, they're found all along the coast of the U.S. Um, they're also found along the coast of Central America and the northern part of South America. They're migratory and will stay away from the far north during the wintertime, but in the summer they'll journey up as far as New York or Vancouver to breed. Their scientific name is Pelicanus occidentalis. The word pelican is actually pretty interesting. It comes from the ancient Greek word pelicus, and this refers to a type of double-bit axe. So like, you know, an axe with heads on both sides. And this word pelicus was actually used um, in ancient Greek to refer to both pelicans and woodpeckers. So something about the beaks of pelicans and then those long beaks of woodpeckers, they just kind of joined them both together. And um, uh, I guess since, you know, woodpeckers peck and bite into trees the way like an ax would bite into the trees, um, they referred to them with that word pelicus um, for the ax. So that's kind of cool. Next time you see a pelican and, you know, you call it pelican, you're basically calling it like ax beak. And then that uh, species name, Occidentalis. It just means Western in Latin. There are eight species of extant pelicans worldwide. Three of those are in the Americas, the Peruvian pelican, the white pelican, and our brown pelican. The brown pelican is a pretty popular bird. Um, I always try to bring up, you know, state birds um, in this podcast, and uh, the state bird of Louisiana is the brown pelican. Not only that, but it features on the state flag, too. Louisiana, one of its nicknames is the Pelican State, and it even has an NBA team, the New Orleans Pelicans. So the brown pelican is much loved down in the bayou. Being an ocean bird, it is no surprise that pelicans mostly eat fish. Uh, depending on the time of year, they may largely be dependent on just one fish species. Uh, for example, during the breeding season in Southern California, their diet is 90% anchovies. And during the breeding season in the Gulf of Mexico, 95% of their diet is made up of menhaden. So 
like the breeding season especially they'll just kind of pick a species of fish that's really abundant easy to get because you know during the breeding season they don't have time for nothing they're just focusing on raising babies it's it's tough work so they'll just scoop up the most abundant fish and not even try for anything else so uh it makes it uh, really important for them to have these fish populations. And if these populations of schooling fish like the anchovies or the menhaden have a collapse, that hurts the pelicans too. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. And while they're mainly eating fish, they also will eat some crustaceans too, usually shrimp. Maybe that's why they're so loved in Louisiana. I mean, they basically eat the same way that the people on the bayou do, just fish and shrimp. I don't know, maybe they sneak some crawdads in too. I'm not sure. Brown pelicans feed with a strategy called plunge dive. Basically what they do is they'll be flying along, they spot a group of schooling fish near the surface, and they dive down, opening their bill wide to scoop them up. They won't always plunge from flying though. Sometimes they'll do this while they're floating on the surface, and like a duck, they'll kind of just dunk their head in and scoop them up. Um, when they're swimming on the surface, they can go pretty quick. They use their web feet to propel them in the water um, at speeds up to three miles per hour. When you watch this plunge dive technique, it's pretty dramatic to see. Uh, they, you know, will be like 15 feet up in the air and then just plunge down. Their bill opens up kind of at the last second to scoop the fish and they just slap the water. Like it's a big splash. and it does not look graceful at all, but it's successful, and uh, they're able to, to eat a lot of fish this way. Since they rely on the fish being near the surface, they mostly hunt in shallow water. You don't see these guys far out into the ocean hunting fish. They're, they're usually within sight of the coastline. One way to ensure that you know fish are up near the surface is if there's something below the fish trying to eat them. So. You'll see this, like, I remember uh, watching some Planet Earths, you know, where whales will, like, um, uh, coerce fish to go into these, like, bait balls, you know, where uh, they kind of herd all the fish into one small area in the water, and then they're able to, like, pick out the fish easier. They're in a dense little bait ball of fish. And when that happens, you know, other species will be like, oh, hot damn, and, like, you'll have gulls diving down to, to grab some fish easily from, uh, from that bait ball that the whales have made. Well, closer to shore, dolphins pretty much do this same thing. And so the dolphins will be feeding on fish, kind of forcing them up near the surface, and pelicans will take advantage of this. They've been known to just follow pods of dolphins around, and every time the dolphins, you know, force some fish up to the surface, the pelicans dive down and get some easy meals too. These feeding frenzies can get pretty dangerous though. Um, on the west coast, uh, pelicans have washed ashore with severe wounds um, from bites caused by sea lions. Sometimes these bites are so bad that they have to be euthanized. These bites aren't consistent with predation though. It's not like the sea lions are trying to eat the pelicans. Probably what's happening is, you know, the dolphins are forcing the fish up and trying to eat them the sea lions come in to, to take advantage of this and eat some fish and then you got pelicans diving down from the air so the sea lions get a little confused and maybe they bite a pelican when they meant to bite a fish there are uh, a couple eyewitness accounts that support this too um, 
they suggest that uh, as those pelicans dive in, um, the sea lions just accidentally bite the pelicans and then really immediately let them go once they taste feathers instead of scales. Um, but this can cause some pretty severe damage. I mean, if you've ever seen a sea lion yawn, it's a pretty uh, daunting set of teeth they got. One real common misconception about pelicans is that they scoop up fish and then fly away with the fish in their pouch. This never ever happens. Pelicans, you know, they dive down. That pouch is just for catching those fish. The moment that they capture the fish, they spit out seawater and then they swallow the fish immediately before they take off. John James Audubon uh, actually writes, uh, he observed that sometimes, especially when the fish the pelican captures are small, they're able to escape out of the bill along with the water. He also reports a really crazy case where a black-headed gull of Wilson, uh, which I think is a laughing gull. Um, sometimes he, he uses weird names for birds, and I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about, but um, I think it's a laughing gull that was observed perching on the head of a pelican and snatching up the tiny fish that escaped out of its bill. I've seen other accounts of this too, like gulls really will kind of do some kleptoparasitism or just like opportunistic feeding when pelicans are around. Um, and, and try to get some fish from the pelicans. And like I said, while fish are the majority of their diet, they will sometimes eat like some crustaceans. I, I think I saw an account of some squids too. Um, they also will occasionally cannibalize their own young. And young of other species are not entirely off the menu either. I found an account from 1987 at Point Reyes, California, where a young brown pelican ate six baby common mures. Uh, also, there was an account from 1989 where a brown pelican, again, this is a young one in the first year of his life, consistently raided a mixed species nesting colony made up of cattle egrets, snowy egrets, and great egrets. This brown pelican was absolutely ruthless. It would snatch up eggs and crack them in its pouch and then spit the eggshells back up like just making scrambled eggs in its pouch there. Um, it would also pluck young out of nests one after another. In one instance, it gobbled up four into its pouch and tried to swallow them all at once, but uh, that was a little bit too much for it, so then it had to spit them back up and just swallow them one by one. Uh, the egret parents uh, initially appeared confused by the pelican's nest raiding, um, so they didn't do anything at first, but as the days went by, they soon began to defend their nest by pecking at the pelican's bill, and blood marks were observed on the brown pelican's bill. So after about a month of this pelican terrorizing the colony, most of the egrets had finished up breeding, um, so they were out of the nest, and the pelican stopped visiting. Uh, these are kind of the only two accounts I, I saw of this. I, um, uh, apparently at Muir colonies, they, they will kind of do this a little more, um, especially in uh, uh, years where food is um, scarce. Uh, they tend to, to rob uh, Muir colonies a little bit more. Um, from these two accounts, it seems like it's really more the young pelicans that engage in this behavior more than the older ones. Uh, kind of my theory on this is that young pelicans aren't super good at catching fish yet. You know, they haven't learned all the skills that the, the older pelicans might have. So they kind of have to turn to some um, alternative food sources to survive.
And another alternative food source that they might seek out is uh, scavenging. So sometimes you'll find brown pelicans at landfills or searching for scraps in coastal cities. They won't always just uh, eat chicks of other bird species. They sometimes will kind of do some kleptoparasitism. In 2010 to 2012, there was a significant sardine population crash in the Pacific Northwest. And brown pelicans were observed pretty routinely raiding common muir colonies. What they would do is they would pick up and shake the chicks after the chicks had been fed, causing them to regurgitate up their meal, which the pelicans then ate. So <laughs> that's so mean. They just picked up and shook the babies until they puked. And then they're like, all right, that's a free meal for me. I would almost rather you just go ahead and, and eat me rather than just pick me up and shake me and make me puke up my meal. Like, come on, just just get it over with. Um, I found an interesting case of a pelican maybe eating something uh, it shouldn't. In 1965, a pelican was found dead washed up on shore in Baja, California. The cause of death was from a stingray that the pelican had tried to swallow tail first, but it impaled its barb into the pelican's throat. Wow, that's a, that's a bad way to go right there. But uh, I don't know, maybe that's what you get for trying to swallow a stingray. Like, just leave that thing alone. And uh, while the ocean is, you know, very important for brown pelicans, uh, obviously uh, they need to be on it and in it to feed, um, they can't remain in it for very long. You'll sometimes see pelicans bobbing on the surface of the water like ducks, but they can only do this for about an hour before their feathers become so waterlogged that they are unable to control their temperature. So large portions of pelicans' days are spent hanging out in trees, on buoys, or docks drying out. Um, <laughs> this behavior, you'll see it's called loafing. Um, I think that's a little bit derisive, like it makes them seem like they're lazy. <laughs> um, while they're loafing, they're, they're not just, you know, hanging out doing nothing. They're preening their feathers or drying off. Um, you might think it would be very difficult for them to preen uh, while swinging this giant bill around. I mean, their bill makes up 25% of their body length. Um, but John James Audubon does a great job explaining their grace. So I'll just read his account. Now, reader, look at those birds standing on their strong legs on that burning sandbar. How dexterously do they wield that great bill of theirs as they train their plumage? Now along each broad quill it passes, drawing it out and displaying its elasticity. And now, with necks stretched to their full length and heads elevated, they direct its point in search of the insects that are concealed along their necks and breasts. Now they droop their wings for a while, or stretch them alternative or stretch them alternately to their full extent. Some slowly lie down on the sand, others remain standing. Quietly draw their heads over their broad shoulders, raise one of their feet, and placing their bill on their backs, compose themselves to rest. There let them repose in peace. John James Audubon, did you really let them repose in peace or did you shoot them? Come on, I want an honest answer. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I mean, a huge part of their day is spent just drying off and, uh, you know, maintaining the integrity of their feathers. And, like, maybe they'll go out for, like, an hour or so to feed, but even after one or two plunges into the water, like, they need to go dry off again. Um, so it's really important that they have pl safe places that they can uh, dry off on, and uh, I'll talk about that a little more. 
Uh, at night also, they rely on islands or structures surrounded by water to offer them a safe place to roost for the night. They're mainly diurnal birds, uh, meaning they you know, are active during the day, but at rare times they'll feed at night, um, usually with full moons. And the food availability for brown pelicans, uh, especially those residing on the west coast, is influenced by weather patterns. Um, on the west coast, it's influenced by the El Nino weather pattern. As I understand it, in years where there is the El Nino weather pattern, uh, the waters along the coast of the western U.S. warm up. Uh, small schooling fish like anchovies, they like nutrient-rich cold water. So uh, this causes them to move out into deeper, cooler waters that are farther offshore and harder for the brown pelicans to get to. So the El Nino is no bueno for the brown pelican. So now I'll talk a little bit about their breeding. Um, their breeding cycle is dependent on the availability of fish in their local area. They can nest anywhere from December to August, um, with peak egg laying occurring in February to May. Adult birds usually molt their feathers from October to January, and their fresh feathers actually can be heard squeaking when they fly. As the spring breeding season approaches, their plumage will darken and they become much more colorful. Two areas where this is most obvious is the bill and the head. The head starts as a pale yellow or white, but as the pelicans rub their head against the uropygeal gland, this is an oil-producing gland located near the base of their tail, it turns to a rich, dark yellow color. So they basically kind of color their own heads with oil. Also, their bills become bright shades of orange, yellow, and red. Uh, kind of similar to, you know, I talked about the puffins, their bills um, undergo a lot of changes uh, in the breeding season. And the same with the pelicans, they put on their most colorful bills uh, when it's time to breed. Pelicans are colony nesters, meaning big groups will all nest together. They are pretty picky about where they will nest. Um, they nest on islands to prevent nest predation by mammals. That's like, you know, really their big thing is like they want to avoid stuff like raccoons or minks or you know little house cats that have a uh, are feral or you know or outdoor cats and are just little murder machines they prefer islands that are at least four miles from the mainland and are about 24 to 170 acres in size they also prefer nesting in shrubs and trees to keep their nests high and dry in case of flooding but, I mean, if nothing else is available, they will nest on the ground. The adult male selects a nest site, um, often, uh, like, especially down in Louisiana, um, in Gulf of Mexico area, in Florida also. Um, they will set up shop in the branches of mangroves. So the male will find a good-looking nest site in a mangrove, and he'll start to perform this head-swaying display to signal that this spot is mine, stay away other males, and also to try to attract a female. And he just sits there and waits for a female to see him and come over and start setting up a family together. Until a mate is obtained, he will remain pretty much rooted to that spot. Um, and in order to claim it, he won't even go out and feed. Usually, he's successful in attracting a mate after two to four days, but there have been a few observed waiting as long as three weeks to attract a mate. Um, and of course, there are some lonely ones that are entirely unsuccessful. 
The pair bond in pelicans is based all around the nest site. They don't mate beforehand um, or anything like that. Um, and the moment that they're done raising their young, their relationship is over. Um, they may reunite um, at the next breeding season. Um, and pelicans that do mate again together, you know, season after season, they seem to be faster at establishing their bond and getting their nest started. So they're just more efficient, you know, in general. But um, while they're like monogamous during a breeding season, you know, they, they don't really stick together throughout the whole year. And even though the male, you know, spends all this time trying to attract the female to his nesting site, at first he's pretty aggressive towards the female, sometimes even chasing her away. I don't know if he's like mixing her up for a male or something, but um, both pelicans have to kind of undergo this whole series of courtship. And the first part is the male just allowing the female to, to perch on the nest site. They then um, undergo a series of head sways, bows, and head turns. Um, as they do this, the male becomes less and less aggressive and finally allows the female to enter the nest site. Often, like, the moment that the male decides, okay, I'm not going to chase her away and lets the female get on the nest site, he'll try to mount her. But this is usually not a successful copulation uh, the first time, you know. Uh, he tries to mount her. It doesn't really work out. So they have to try again a little later. Oh, I see some brown pelicans. There are three, and they are flying in the troughs of the waves. I'm giving them a lot of credit right now because those waves are erratic and scary right now. Like, I don't know. If one of those waves crashed on you, you would for sure, you'd be swimming. Um, but they're very graceful. Um, I'll talk about why they fly in the troughs of the waves like that. Um, but it's pretty cool to watch. Um, they're just like, I don't know, like a foot above the water. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. So three, three brown pelicans hanging out, flying along the ocean on a windy and wavy day. So where was I? Oh yeah, we're building a nest. Okay, so the male and female, they build the nest together, uh, with the male delivering nesting material to the female, who then arranges, uh, the branches. The male will tear branches off of trees, um, and then she'll create a platform uh, that is then shaped into a cup by stomping on it with her feet and poking it with her bill. If they're nesting on the ground, they will make a mound of soil with a shallow depression in the middle, usually lined by feathers and debris. Once the nest is completed, the female will lay one to three eggs. Parents use their webbed feet to cover their eggs and keep them warm, both males and females share this incubating duty. Since they use their feet to incubate their eggs, they can sometimes accidentally crush their eggs if they are startled and forced to fly off their nest. So never, never, ever scare nesting pelican. Like I saw something about like boaters approaching nests and you know, the pelican will get spooked and fly off. And of course, you know, when you fly off your nest they have to kind of push with their feet so if they push down on those eggs they'll just crack them and you know that's a sad day after about 30 days of sitting on the nest keeping them warm with their feet the eggs will begin to hatch the eggs hatch about two to three days apart chicks are born blind featherless and totally dependent on their parents pelican chicks don't live in harmony though there's a lot of sibling rivalry 
this is kind of similar to my Shoebill Stork episode uh, I just did. The egg that hatches first has a head start on growth and feeding and immediately begins to assert its dominance over its little brothers and sisters. Initially, pelican parents feed their young via an indirect feeding method where they deposit food directly onto the nest. And this is because the young are so small now they can't eat like whole fish or anything like that. So, you know, the parents have to kind of regurgitate partially digested food for them. The nestlings will compete over this food. The bigger, older, more aggressive sibling, uh, he's termed the alpha nestling, he or she is termed the alpha nestling. Um, they'll peck and body check their sibling out of the way to get to the food. Often this results in the younger sibling dying off from starvation, from their peck wounds, or even getting pushed out of the nest. The junior siblings don't just sit back and take it though. They will actively peck back at the alpha chick. They peck less often than the alpha chick does though. Um, a study I read showed that alpha chicks deliver an average of 10 pecks per hour, while the junior deliver only five. Pecks per hour, I like that as like a, a measurement. How many pecks per hour? This is a pretty brutal system, um, even compared to other birds. Like uh, I saw a study of another like pelagic bird species, the blue-footed booby. Um, it has similar sibling aggression system, but in studies, the nestlings there only deliver about one peck per hour. So I mean, 10 pecks per hour compared to one peck per hour, that's a lot of pecks. The sibling aggression does have a point though. Um, while there might be not enough food to go around for two to three chicks, um, brown pelican parents will lay two to three eggs because that way they have insurance against egg failure. One study found 15% of eggs laid by brown pelicans were destroyed before hatching, usually due to predation by gulls. And those alpha chicks might suddenly die from disease or predation, allowing one of the more junior siblings to take their place. Also, in years where food is plentiful, there's a chance one of the junior chicks will survive to adulthood. At around day 30, parents transition from direct feeding uh, to supplying nestlings whole fish directly from their bills. At around day 30, parents transition from, you know, spitting the regurgitated food onto the nest to a strategy called direct feeding, where they will supply nestlings whole fish from their bills. At three to five weeks old, nestlings go from the little pink-purple naked nestlings uh, to being covered in fluffy white-gray down feathers. They are now able to thermoregulate on their own, and parents can leave them alone on the nest while both parents leave to go forage. Before that, you know, one parent would kind of have to stick behind to keep them warm. But now that they're covered in these fluffy feathers, uh, they can do okay on their own. So mom and dad can both go gather food. I don't know, the kids just stay home and peck each other. Over the breeding season, brown pelicans will adjust the locations they feed at. Um, as their chicks grow and require more food, they will forage in areas with higher densities of prey fish. Between hatching and fledging, a chick requires an average of 125 pounds of fish to reach adulthood. That's a lot of fish. That may be more than I eat in a year. And that 125 pounds of fish, I mean, that's all in like little sardines in Menhaden. So you can just imagine how much actual fish that is that the parents are catching. And on top of that, the parents have to feed themselves too. 
Around day 75, the baby pelicans have fully fledged and are ready to leave the nest. While they are usually unable to fly immediately upon leaving the nest, they can swim really well right away. So they can start swimming around, kind of grabbing some fish off the surface. Um, uh, in the mangroves, they'll kind of be walking around below the mangroves and below the nest. At the point that the babies can leave the nest, the adults will usually abandon the nesting site and will go uh, roost and loaf elsewhere, like on sandbars or buoys. Even when they can fly, immature birds are pretty clumsy. Um, it takes them a while to learn how to perch on trees specifically. So during this time when they're still figuring out how to you know, use those awkward webbed feet, um, they rely really heavily on sandbars to provide them a safe place to dry off or to sleep at night. But human activity can really negatively affect these birds just trying to hang out on sandbars. If you grew up on the water like me, you know one of the most fun things to do is to take your boat out to a nice sandbar and hang out with other boaters, a couple of coolers, some music playing. Um, but uh, this can be pretty detrimental to the birds that would like to hang out there too. A study looking at sandbars in Key West, Florida found that on weekends where there was a peak number of boaters pulling up to party on the sandbars, pelicans were pushed to roosting sites farther inland. As I mentioned earlier, this could be potentially fatal for the juveniles who rely on these sandbars to roost because they're not coordinated enough to perch in the trees. So you push them off of that sandbar, I mean, they really have nowhere to go. Additionally, forcing pelicans inland removes them from their feeding grounds and increases the distance that they'll have to fly, putting them at risk for exhaustion and starvation. Fishermen can also spook pelicans, particularly surf anglers who wade out into the shallow water around colony nesting sites. Um, they've been known to kind of spook pelicans, uh, you know, whether they're sitting on their nests and they spook them and then they crush their eggs flying away or, you know, it's like just pelicans trying to rest and they keep getting uh, spooked and flying away and then they get tired and exhausted. The current recommendation is to keep 100 yards, uh, the length of a football field, away from any roosting, loafing, or nesting pelicans. I think we can do that, people. So, you're a young pelican, you've left the nest, you're hanging out on sandbars till you finally get coordinated enough to land in trees, or on like, you know, a buoy or something, or a dock. Um, still, it's going to take you about three to five years to reach full sexual maturity and to don that colorful breeding plumage of the adults. There are records of pelicans breeding even while they're still in their juvenile plumage. Um, often this is in areas that are recently recolonized by brown pelicans and the sexually mature older adults are uh, absent. So then the young ones get to kind of uh, play house. So that does it for breeding. Um, we'll briefly talk about vocalizations uh, for these birds. Um, there's not really a lot to talk about because they're pretty silent birds. Um, I don't really have many recordings to play for y'all. Uh, the noise you're most likely to hear from them is that massive splash they make when they plunge into the water. Um, you may uh, hear them make some harsh noises if they're disturbed during courtship. Um, they're also known to snap their bills, um, particularly while they're trying to defend their nest. 
Um, I do have some recordings of them as nestlings, um, like all baby birds um, and just babies in general. <laughs> They're pretty noisy and make begging calls for food. So now I'll talk about some of the really cool evolutionary adaptations uh, these birds have to help them succeed uh, in the ocean. The respiratory system of pelicans is specially adapted to prevent water from entering their lungs uh, when they plunge into the water after fish. Their nostrils are actually covered by a membrane of skin. In most birds, the nostrils are kind of the primary way air is breathed in. Um, but pelicans seem to have traded this off, um, this usual respiration pattern, um, in order to prevent them uncomfortably snorting up water during their dives. Uh, this kind of makes me think of, you know, when you were a kid at the pool and there was always that one kid with like nose clamps on and earplugs and giant goggles, probably wearing fins too, even though he's like swimming in the baby pool. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pelicans. They also have really strong muscles surrounding both their pouch and their larynx. Um, their pouch isn't just like a floppy sack meant to hold fish. It's a unique organ that's designed to capture fish um, along with a tub of heavy seawater and then just strain out that seawater while preventing the escape of the tiny fish. There's another group of animals actually that uses a very similar adaptation to feed, um, but you would never guess it. Go ahead and try. Think for a second. What other animals have a similar wrinkly pouch um, on their chin that they use to scoop up seawater and food items alike? Whales! Yes, baleen whales like the blue whale and fin whale have a similar pouch to pelicans. Um, this is an example of convergent evolution where, uh, you know, they're not related at all, but, um, but both evolve this similar adaptation. The pouches of pelicans are way more complex than you'd expect. They need to be stretchy, but not too stretchy, or else they would just fill up with water until they burst. Um, they also need to be strong enough to push the water back out again um, while retaining the food items. Their pouches can actually hold up to 11 liters of water. That's about 25 pounds hanging off the bottom of their chin. Microscopic analysis of the pouch skin of brown pelicans reveals a complex wavy matrix of collagen fibrils that are sandwiched between two layers of tough skin that give the pouch its flexibility and durability. In order to accommodate the stretchy pouch, the mandibular bones of the pelican have to be flexible too. This bowing of the mandibular bones is termed Streptonathism, which means twisted jaw in Latin. Basically, the jaw bones of the bill go from being straight and long to short and curved, looking a lot like the rim of like a fishing net. The reason why the bones can bend like this is because they lack mineralization. In bones, mineralization serves to make the bones strong and unbending, but if too much force is applied, then they will snap. Unmineralized bone isn't as strong, but will bend without breaking. The antlers of deer are an example of unmineralized bone. 
Um, this allows their antlers to kind of act like shock absorbers when they butt heads and not simply snap off. Pelicans also have a specially adapted glottis. The glottis is a muscular skin fold that closes off the trachea, the passage to the lungs when uh, we're eating and instead directs food and water down our esophagus to our stomach. Um, otherwise, we would just uh, constantly aspirate all our food. Um, in pelicans, it functions similarly, um, but they have two special skin folds on either side of their glottis that act like valves that allow air to pass out while keeping water from coming in. This means that the pelican can still breathe even with a mouthful of water, which is really cool. Speaking of breathing, the respiration system of birds is really complex, um, way more so than us humans. We just simply breathe in, breathe out, out of our lungs. Uh, but birds, they do have lungs, but they also have multiple levels of air sacs throughout their body. Some are deep within the body, some are, in, some are within bones, um, others lay pretty close to the skin surface. Um, if you want more info on this, listen to my bird bods episode. I, I talk about uh, how the bird respiratory system is like a conveyor belt and humans it's just like bellows. While most of the air sacs within bones are not really connected to the lungs, um, they function mostly just to make the bones lighter um, in birds and help to kind of properly align their organs to distribute weight equally in flight. Um, some birds though, including pelicans, uh, the air sacs within these bones actually connect directly with the lungs. So in pelicans, uh, within their humerus, which is the upper arm bone, um, these air sacs connect directly with the lungs. Um, uh, example of this is, is rather gruesome. Um, I saw an account where a bird with a broken wing, um, a snapped off humerus, um, was still able to breathe even though its trachea was blocked off. I, I really couldn't tell what kind of circumstances this was observed in. Um, it sounds like some shit out of a Saw movie, but apparently even if their you know, throat is choked off, if their arm is broken, then they will still be able to breathe. On a lighter note, uh, literally, um, those superficial air sacs that lie close to the skin surface may serve an important function related to pelicans' plunging feeding style. As I mentioned earlier, when pelicans dive into the water, they hit the water not with a smooth, graceful dive of like, say, a kingfisher, but rather a clumsy looking flop. It barely seems to break the surface though before bobbing right back up. This is because brown pelicans are able to inflate themselves like a raft by breathing against a closed airway and directing air into their superficial air sacs. Experiments using dead but inflated pelicans have found that they are so buoyant that they can support twice their weight on their back before sinking. There's probably several reasons why pelicans have this adaptation. Um, the superficial air sacs create a cushion around their bodies when they hit the water. When pelicans plunge into the water, um, they might do it from as high as 50 feet and they can reach speeds of 40 miles per hour while diving. So it's really important that they kind of have a little bit of cushioning. Uh, otherwise, they'll just be like giving themselves a concussion or injuries every time they hit the water. If you look closely, you'll also notice that pelicans tend to strike the water with their left side when they dive in. This is to protect their trachea and esophagus, which actually run alongside the right side of their neck. 
these air sacs also kind of act like life jackets and help these large birds from being dragged underwater by a crashing wave or their heavy billfuls of food and water. Another really cool adaptation of these birds is that they can drink salt water. Now, we can't do this. Um, the salt content in the salt water in the ocean is just so much that our kidneys can't keep up. And in pelicans, their kidneys can't keep up either. It's just too much. However, they have special salt glands that they use to excrete this excess salt. The salt gland is located near their external nares, so like their nose. Um, just to demonstrate how efficient these salt glands are compared to the kidneys, um, experiments with brown pelicans found that when they were injected with salt water, the kidneys excrete only one-fifth of the salt, while the salt gland handles the other four-fifths. So they still have like the lacrimal gland, you know, the one that produces tears and kind of helps to lubricate the eyes, but then they have an additional gland that literally cries tears of salt. As if two glands isn't enough, the brown pelican also has a third tear-producing gland called the hardirian gland. This produces a thick hypotonic, meaning low salt, fluid. It's basically a fluid similar to WD-40 or motor fluid because its job is to lubricate the eye and a thin translucent membrane called the nicotating membrane. Nicotating membranes are very important for aquatic feeding birds. Um, they're basically evolutionary goggles. Uh, they're seen on a wide variety of species, on birds and reptiles, um, and uh, basically it's just a clear set of eyelids that you can just close and still see through, but then they protect your eyes. Pelicans also have a really cool strategy to minimize the energy that they expend during flight. As I kind of narrated earlier, um, a lot of times when you're at the beach and you see brown pelicans, they'll be flying low, close to the water, and in between waves. Sometimes they're flying so low that their wingtips seem to touch the approaching wave, almost like a surfer trailing their hand out to skim the water behind them while they're riding a wave. This behavior is called wave slope soaring. It's also known as troughing by sailors. Um, and it reduces the energy expenditure by about 60 to 70 percent. Uh, basically, my understanding of how the physics of this works for these birds is the approaching waves push air up, creating an updraft that the pelicans then use to gain altitude. The pelicans will then glide downwards, which helps them gain speed and creates lift, further helping them to kind of lift up into the air. They also will turn towards the next incoming wave, which will push air up, kind of help carry the bird up again, and this just repeats the cycle over and over again. Pelicans also take advantage of air currents to gain altitude. Um, I talk all about thermal currents in my Carry On My Vulture Suns episode, so I won't repeat that. But this troughing behavior or, or wave slope soaring is super cool to watch. I mean, the pelicans don't even have to flap their wings and they just travel up miles of coastline. And it looks really fun too. Like if I was a bird, this is what I would do all day. It's basically like fly surfing. One more behavior I want to point out is called glottis exposure. Um, I want to just point this one out because I see a lot of stuff posted on the internet about this. Um, basically, pelicans will sometimes hunch their head down against their neck and push their pouch out of their mouth. 
It's uh, a really weird, freaky looking thing. Um, I've uploaded some photos of it uh, before onto like uh, Reddit and stuff, and I'll post some on uh, the Dirty Bird Podcast social media. But on the internet, you see this posted a lot, and people are saying that the pelicans are like sticking their spines out of their mouth. Um, I guess it kind of looks like this, but it's not really true. The pelicans are just kind of stretching their pouch um, over like their shoulders or their spine. Um, They're not sticking their spine out. And they do this kind of as a comfort measure, um, almost like people, you know, crack their knuckles. The current population numbers of brown pelicans is around 101,000 to 104,000 breeding pairs. Their populations can suffer declines in years where sardine, anchovy, or menhaden numbers crash. And they're pretty long-lived birds. The oldest known brown pelican was 43 years old. As far as uh, some predators of these birds, um, I did see one record of a bald eagle killing an adult pelican while it was sitting on its nest. Um, River otters have also been observed preying on California brown pelicans, and studies have found a significant amount of brown pelican remains in river otter feces. So, like, it wasn't just, like, here and there maybe a river otter was killing some brown pelicans. It seems like these river, smart little river otters kind of, you know, learn to take advantage of the brown pelicans. Sharks and saltwater crocodiles have been observed preying on brown pelicans. It's pretty terrifying. They basically will just snatch them up while they're bobbing on the surface. As far as parasites for these birds, um, I found that the soft-bodied tick Karyos capensis uh, is a common ectoparasite of nestling brown pelicans. Um, Sometimes they can be pretty devastating, like high levels of tick infestations may even cause parents to abandon their nest. They're basically like, I'm sorry kids, you got too many bugs on you, bye-bye. Fish-eating birds in general tend to have just a lot of parasites inside them. I mean, fish are kind of lousy with parasites, so um, like I talked about this in my Kingfisher episode and my Blue Heron one, um, but there's a lot of parasites that live inside brown pelicans too. One study that looked at 113 pelicans collected from Florida and Louisiana found 31 species of parasitic worms. Most of these 31 species enter the pelicans as intermediate forms, meaning that their eggs or their larvae are inside the fish that the pelicans eat, um, and then inside the pelicans they become their full adult form. The exception to this rule is a particularly nasty nematode called contracachium which is capable of infecting humans too. And while this parasite um, can be acquired by pelicans in its intermediate form, you know, it may be a little like egg in the fish and then, you know, becomes an adult once it's eaten by the pelican. It also can be passed directly in its adult form to the nestlings when the pelican parents regurgitate food into the nest. Um, When you think of parasite life cycles, um, I kind of think about like Pokemon that have to pass through several stages of evolution um, before they become like that big bad adult Charizard parasite. Uh, Many parasites pass through multiple species of invertebrates or fish before they finally reach like their final host, like the bird or mammalian species where they can become their adult form. One example of this is Mestophanus appendiculatoides. 
which uses the brown pelicans as its only known final host. The first host, though, is a humble little marine snail that ingests the eggs of Mustophanus, and then when that snail is eaten by mullet, uh, a type of fish, the parasite then passes on to the mullet um, before finally being consumed by a pelican. Once in the pelican, Mustophanus sets up shop in the small intestine and becomes its adult form, laying eggs that are then shit out by pelicans, gobbled up by marine snails, and it starts the process all over again. So I know some of you are probably gagging right now with all this parasite talk, but <laughs> I mean, I find it really fascinating. Um, what's really cool too is just how specific parasites are with their hosts and with their location. They need to be eaten by just the right species multiple times in order to complete their life cycle. And when one species is removed from this chain, the whole thing crashes and the parasites can go extinct. One illustration of this is studies that have found higher diversity of parasites in the Atlantic coast versus pelicans on the Gulf Coast. Uh, one hypothesis for why this is, is because Gulf Coast species of brown pelicans underwent significant population crashes during the 1800s and early 1900s, while the Atlantic coast of pelicans were able to pretty much hold on. When pelicans went extinct in the Gulf states, a crucial chain in the parasite web of life was broken, and some species of parasite likely went extinct too. I'll talk in just a little bit about why exactly those Gulf Coast populations crashed. Toxic algae blooms also affect pelicans. Um, if you're from the Pacific Northwest, you're probably familiar with signs on the beach telling you not to harvest any shellfish there. This is due to blooms of Pseudonitschia australis, a type of plankton called a diatom, and it produces a neurotoxin that concentrates in the fish and shellfish that consume it. When eaten by humans or other animals, it can result in a really weird disease called amnesic shellfish poisoning. Basically, you get food poisoning with vomiting and diarrhea and stomach pains, but you also have short-term memory loss. I can't imagine how terrifying it would be to wake up covered in shit and vomit and you have no idea what happened. This same thing can happen to pelicans too, bad enough that it kills them. Red tides can also kill pelicans too, um, not due to any toxin, but rather due to a soapy foam formed by the breakdown of the plankton that sticks to the pelican's feathers and causes them to become waterlogged and hypothermic. We talked about how pelicans kind of have a hard time staying dry and regulating their temperature. So if they get this on them, then, you know, they can just easily freeze to death. Algae blooms are worsened by global warming and by pollution. Pollution also affects brown pelicans directly. As you'll remember from my osprey and kingfisher episodes, fish-eating birds tend to concentrate a lot of toxic chemicals in their body. These chemicals come from farm runoff of fertilizers and insecticides, and also from industrial pollution. The type of pollutants brown pelicans encounter actually differs depending on which coast of the U.S. you are on. In a study I read from 2012, South Carolina pelicans had high levels of polychlorinated biphenyls called PCBs, chlordanes, dieldrins, and murex. PCBs are found widely in electrical equipment and lubricants. Chlordanes, dieldrin, and murex are all insecticides. So apparently the East Coast releases a lot of these into the water supply. California brown pelicans, however, had high levels of DDT and hexachlorocyclohexanes. 
Both of these are notoriously toxic insecticides and have actually been banned for several decades. So the fact that they are still found in 2012 shows how long these chemicals persist in the food chain. So now I'll wrap up talking about some brown pelican conservation, kind of why their populations crashed, how they're doing now, um, and uh, also their evolutionary history, um, and a little bit of their kind of interactions with humans and some mythology. Um, and then we'll call it a day here at Dirty Bird. Right now the wind has calmed down a bit, the waves are not as crazy, so I'm hoping I might see some more pelicans, you know, maybe trying to catch some fish too. During the 1700s and 1800s, pelicans were shot extensively for their feathers. Even John James Audubon's writings um, at around 1830 noted that their numbers had severely decreased due to this hunting. This is a time in the Western world where wearing feathers in your hat, called millinery, was the height of fashion. The bigger the feather, the more of a status symbol it was. And brown pelicans are pretty big birds with pretty big feathers. Also, brown pelicans are pretty easy to spot and shoot. They aren't hidden amongst trees or shrubs like a lot of other birds. They're just out in the open, perched on a dock or on a sandbar. Uh, just a quick side note, the history of the millinery trade is fascinating um, and also those opposed to it. Um, check out my episode on the Rosette Spoon Bill. Um, I talk about some of the heroes that died during the plume wars fighting these illegal feather collectors. The first ever National Wildlife Refuge actually was set up to protect brown pelicans. Pelican Island was set aside by Theodore Roosevelt in 1903 to protect them from plume hunters. He was inspired to do this partly by a German immigrant named Paul Krogel, um, who since 1881 had made it his mission to guard the birds of Pelican Island. He would sail out to the island daily with a gun in his hand. Uh, with the creation of the Pelican Island as a National Wildlife Refuge, Paul was made its warden and given a fancy badge and a whopping $1 a month salary for his hard work. Feather hunters weren't the only ones killing brown pelicans though. Fishermen also tended to shoot them, falsely thinking that they were competing with them for fish. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 you know, definitely helped kind of cut down on their hunting and killing. While brown pelican populations initially recovered after people stopped shooting them, a mass uptick in pollution in the water system of the U.S. from factory and farm runoff in the 1950s and 1960s drove these birds close to extinction again. DDT was especially harmful. We all know how close bald eagles came to extinction um, from this eggshell thinning insecticide, but brown pelicans had it just as bad. In fact, the brown pelican, the state bird of Louisiana, became extinct in that state in the early 1960s. This massive decline caused the brown pelican to be made an endangered species in 1970. Luckily, DDT was banned in 1972, and America has slowly made more progress on cutting down on pollution, although we certainly have a long way to go. Brown pelican populations have been recovering nicely. A study in 2002 even suggested their current population of around 100,000 may be larger than even their historical numbers. One thing I want to point out though is that DDT wasn't banned in Mexico until 2000 and studies have shown that even with it banned, high levels were detected in the southern state of Sonora in 2013. 
but luckily, I mean, those brown pelicans, they're, they're doing all right. They're coming back, and they were removed from the endangered species list in 2009. But their woes aren't over yet. Um, remember how they went extinct in Louisiana? Uh, well, in 1968, a reintroduction program was started and slowly saw a rebound in brown pelican numbers. But hurricanes and human development continually force brown pelicans away from the water-surrounded islands they prefer to roost on. In response, many packed up and headed for the Texas coast, or have to use less ideal roosting grounds where the risks of predation are higher. Another big blow to the Louisiana brown pelicans came in 2010 with the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Over a quarter of dead birds collected from the oil spill were brown pelicans. And while the damage caused by that terrible oil spill will likely last forever, the resilient brown pelicans still remain in the bayou state. Part of the management strategy for brown pelicans has been to create man-made islands for brown pelicans to breed on. This strategy does appear to be working, um, but pelicans don't appear to nest in as dense of colonies as they would on natural islands. One final um, man-made killer of pelicans is abandoned fishing line um, and nets, which are big killers of these birds. In Florida alone, it's estimated 700 pelicans a year die from becoming entangled in fishing equipment. All right, I know this is a long episode, folks, but hang in there. We're going to talk about evolution, a couple last interesting facts, um, and then we'll just go on to enjoy our beach day. So I've kind of touched upon pelican evolution in a few episodes now um, when I talked about the roseate spoonbills, the great blue herons, um, and just in my last episode on the shoebill stork, actually, um, which is a surprisingly close relative of pelicans. The order Pelicanformis has its origins with the wider seabird clade that first emerged around 79 million years ago after the extinction event that took out the dinosaurs. This is a huge clade of birds that went on to produce many diverse species like storks, loons, albatrosses, and penguins. You might think pelicans would be most closely related to some other ocean birds you commonly see, um, them alongside at the beach like gulls, cormorants, or frigate birds. Um, well, I kind of already spoiled this surprise, but actually pelicans are most closely related to a couple families of birds usually found wading in freshwater like herons, ibises, and spoonbills. Around 50 to 59 million years ago, the common ancestor for the order Pelicanformes first formed, and this is also around the time the closest relative of the pelicans, the shoebill stork, a literal living fossil, evolved, and its behavior shed some light on what ancestral pelicans were probably like. They likely nested on the ground, similar to the shoebills, and they also likely had already evolved those special glands that helped them excrete salt, as studies comparing skull morphology of many seabird species suggest that this evolutionary trait is fairly ancient. Another thing that's certain about ancient pelicans, though, is by 30 million years ago, they had already evolved their unmistakably large beak. The oldest known fossil from the pelican family was found in Luberon, France, and it shows a bird with a bill of similar body proportion size to modern-day pelicans, meaning that even 30 million years ago, pelicans had evolved the perfect ratio of bill size that was big enough to allow them to scoop up a large number of fish, but not so large that it inhibited flight. Once the pelican had its iconic bill, 
the finer points that separate the eight species of the pelicans we know today began to evolve. Genetic analysis has shown that three major clades exist within the pelican family. The first group is composed of the Old World pelicans, the spot-billed, pink-backed, and Dalmatian pelicans, along with their sister group, the Australian pelican. Another group is composed of the New World pelicans, our brown pelican, the white pelican, and the Peruvian pelican. The final group contains just one member, the great white pelican of Africa and Asia. These clades seem to suggest either an African or Asian origin for pelicans. And this makes sense, since the most ancient member of the pelican formus family, the shoebill stork, resides in Africa. The fact that all the New World members are closely related hints that there was likely a single colonization event of pelicans from Africa and Asia to the New World. Among the American pelicans, the white pelican has a long-standing separation from both the brown and Peruvian pelicans. The white pelican is much more of a freshwater specialist, while the brown and Peruvian prefer saltwater. So the ancestral American pelican was likely a freshwater specialist that had white feathers, but as it became more adapted to the harsh, salty water, it diverged into the ancestor of the brown and the Peruvian pelicans. I've talked about this before in the show, I think in my Song Sparrow episode, that um, birds that live near the coast um, or near saltwater, you tend to see them with darker colorations in their feathers. Um, this is because melanin, which produces the brown color, um, makes feathers more resistant to the wear and tear um, of harsh ocean breezes and that rough salt. So likely the first American pelican was pretty much like the white pelican that we have today. It was white in color, it liked fresh water, and then as certain populations became more adapted to ocean life, um, they became more brown and became the brown and the Peruvian pelican. The split between the Peruvian and the brown pelican likely occurred when the Humboldt current met the equatorial current in northern Peru creating an ecological barrier that separated the two populations until they speciated. One zoom tree of life seems to suggest this happened around 14 to 17 million years ago. With climatic shifts and sea level changes over the millennia, brown pelican population distribution has changed too. While they are occasional visitors to Bermuda today, a fossilized egg was found on the island dating from the middle Pleistocene around 100,000 years ago showing evidence that at that time, brown pelicans had a breeding colony on the island. So there you have it, a little information about how pelicans first formed. Uh, they first formed probably from kind of a more wading-like bird, like the shoebill stork. And, uh, you know, over in Africa, Asia became like the pelicans we know today. By around 30 million years ago, they definitely had that iconic bill. And then at some point, a white freshwater loving pelican made it over to America um, and then eventually went to the ocean and became the brown and the Peruvian pelican. So finally I'll wrap up with a little bit of uh, more facts about brown pelicans and their human interactions. The pouch of pelicans uh, in the 1700s and 1800s used to be dried out and used to store tobacco, gunpowder, and bullets. The brown pelican is the national bird of St. Martin, Barbados, St. Kitts, and St. Kitts and Nevis, and the Turks and Caicos Islands. 
Um, I found a paper detailing how in Arizona, brown pelicans have a tendency to crash into asphalt roadways, possibly because they see mirage shimmering on the roadways and think it's water. And while I've kind of said that brown pelicans are strictly saltwater birds, there are some accounts of them venturing more inland. I found an account from 1903 at Lima Lakes, Illinois, where a wandering brown pelican was shot and identified. Another from 1899 in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where one was found in the city reservoir. These pelicans were probably super confused that, you know, they were in fresh water. Um, a quick note, um, in the uh, movie Finding Nemo, there is a brown pelican uh, named Nigel, um, who kind of helps like transport Dory and uh, Nemo's dad. Um, but there are no brown pelicans in Australia. They do have an Australian pelican, but, um, I mean, if you look at pictures of an Australian pelican, it looks nothing like Nigel from the movie, so I don't know what the hell Pixar was thinking. Um, all right, so we're at the end of the show, but I've still kind of left one question, um, from Kevin unanswered. Uh, he asked, is there an alpha pelican when they do their V-flying formation? So pelicans are very social birds. They nest in colonies, sometimes numbering in the thousands. They roost in groups at night. They fly together in those V formations. Um, obviously there's some kind of social interaction going on. However, I couldn't really find any studies specifically studying their social hierarchies. Uh, maybe in the future I'll do like an entire episode on just social structure and uh, communal birds in general and kind of like why they do those V formations. Um, however, I did find this account from John James Audubon, um, where he kind of talks about a little bit of the behavior of the pelican. So, um, Kevin, I hope this satisfies you. So he's talking about the brown pelican breeding, and he says, Some skirmishes have taken place, and the stronger males, by dint of loud snapping of their bills, some hard rugs of the neck and head, and some heavy beats with their wings, have driven away the weaker, which content themselves with less prized bells. The females, although quiet and gentle on ordinary occasions, are more courageous than the males. So, anecdotally at least, it appears there is some kind of hierarchy within flocks based on an individual pelican's strength and courage. But um, other than that, that's all I have for this episode. There's a ton of interesting research um, on brown pelicans. I mean, you could tell from how long this episode is, um, but there's all kinds of stuff I didn't even get to touch on, like how in medieval England, pelican mothers were thought to feed their young with their own blood. Oh, you know how I love my myths and legends. <laughs> but before we go, here's the review I promised. Um, this is a great one from someone named Booty Forever. <laughs> they write, I recently started commuting to work after over a year and a half of working from home. Dirty Bird makes the adjustment to commuting a lot more bearable. I've learned so much and have laughed along the way. I'd recommend the podcast to both casual nature lovers and hardcore birders alike. A funny, lighthearted approach to learning more about our feathered friends. Thanks for that review, Booty Forever. Send me an email or Instagram DM uh, to claim your free stickers. All right, that's all I have for today. As always, stay dirty, my birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. 
The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. in the back and I like the New York Mets and my cowboy